Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study today. And we ask that your spirit will join us and that our minds will be drawn together and we will have discernment and, and wisdom and we will experience the, the beauty of your character and your law of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number six in the uh, quarterly glimpses of our God. And the title this week is God the Lawgiver. God the Lawgiver. Okay? And um, when you hear the title, what pops into your mind when you hear the title? Imposed law. law, she says. Lawgiver. Okay, any, any other thoughts pop into your mind? Well, I want to start out um, just with a couple of, of Bible texts to kind of frame it, and then we'll g- go through the lesson. Uh, Psalms 119, 165, and you know this, the Psalms. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. And then Psalms 19, 7 and 8, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. You think through the implications of these two passages as we go through the entire lesson of the day, because we want to understand God's law where these passages are always true, giving, uh, bringing life, reviving the soul, giving wisdom, bringing light. Because our God is beautiful. His character is beautiful. His law is beautiful. But Satan hates the beauty of God and his character and his law. And so Satan works to pervert how we see God's law and thus how we see his character. And we'll see if we can't uh, tease those apart as we go through the lesson of the day. Look at the Sabbath lesson. It says, as Seventh-day Adventists, we often hear the idea that the law is a transcript of God's character. If so, then because God doesn't change, the law, which reveals his character, shouldn't change either. What, though, does that mean? Suppose you live in a land with a king whose word was law. The state, that's me, one French king famously said. Now, suppose the king issued laws that were repressive, nasty, hateful, unfair, discriminatory, and so forth. Would not those laws be a good representation of the kind of person the king was? Would they not reveal his character? Think through some of history's worst despots. How did the laws they passed reveal the kind of people they were? In this sense, the law reveals the character of the lawgiver. What then does God's law reveal about God? When we understand God's law as a hedge, a protection, something created for us, for our own good, then we come to an understanding more about what God is like. Thoughts about the opening presentation here. Do you agree that the law is an expression of God's character? Yeah, Yeah, I think that's true. And once you accept that reality, what do you think about the phrase that says, if so, then because God's law doesn't change, the law which reveals his character shouldn't change either. Would, Would you have used the word shouldn't? Doesn't. doesn't or cannot or can't change. It's a little. I would have just given a little stronger word there. Shouldn't almost sounds like it can. Almost sounds that way to me. Um, so why can God's law not change? And, and there are two basic ways this can be understood. Why? One reason why that somebody could offer that God's law can't change is because 
God is the one who enacted it, and only God has the authority to change it. Have you ever heard that argument put forth? No. You've never heard that argument put forth? You've never heard anything put forth like, God made Sabbath holy, and nowhere in Scripture and holy writ do we find written where God transferred the solemnity of Sabbath to Sunday. But if we could find in the holy writ where God changed the day from Sabbath to Sunday, then we would, would worship. Have you, you've never heard this argument. Yes. I've heard that quite commonly growing up. The suggestion that it's God enacted the law and therefore only God can change it. That's one possible reason why the law can't change. Another possible reason, God's character is love. And he constructed his universe to operate on certain principles or building protocols, the expression of his character, and therefore you can't change the law without destroying life. And also, the law can't change without God himself being a different being. His character would necessarily change if the law changed. Which is a more solid, constant, reliable law? One in which somebody put in effect and and they have the power to change it if they want, or one that's built on their very essence? Yeah. Does a different concept of God's law alter the way we see him? So basically, you guys have already said there are two types of laws as we think of them. There are the natural laws and there are the imposed laws. I'm going to throw some laws out to you, and I want you to tell me what category do they fall into, natural law or imposed law, because there's lots of laws. We've got lots of laws. You tell me. The laws of health like respiration, hydration, nutrition. The laws of health like you must be 21 in order to drink. Imposed. That's also a law of health, isn't it? Yeah. How about the laws of nature? Thermodynamics, motion, friction? How about um, speed limits? (laughs) How about tax laws? How about marital law? Who you may and may not marry? It's imposed. How about the law of liberty? Love can only exist in an atmosphere with freedom. How about the law of love, that life is built on a principle of giving? How about the law of genetics, that life changes, your, your actual experience change your gene expression and you pass those expression changes to your kids? Natural or imposed? Natural. How about... Criminal laws against robbery and murder and rape. Those are natural laws. Imposed. You say it's going to happen to them because of because of their crime, but it's natural in terms of what's happening in their mind because of their crimes. Okay. What what she's pointing out is that the criminal laws that are passed are based on the principles, but the laws themselves that are passed are imposed laws. When you pass a law that uh, it's rape to have sex with somebody you're not married to who's under the age of 16, but it's not voluntary, and they're, and they're a voluntary participant, but a voluntary participant over the age of 16, it's not rape, that's arbitrary. That's an arbitrary law. You were talking statutory rape. That's a statute. A statute is an arbitrary law. 
So, but it's based on the principles that you're mentioning, maybe reflected in something called the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. So, how about the civil laws that we must not misrepresent someone in media? Slander, libel. Imposed or natural? Imposed. Imposed, yes. I've been told many times that the uh, laws of the land, our civil laws, are based on the Ten Commandments. Is that true? Um, Partially. I don't see anywhere in the Ten Commandments they have a speed limit. (laughs) So, but partially, yes, the underlying principles we just talked about. So, question, what is the purpose of natural laws? What are their purpose? The natural laws that we just talked about. There's a purpose. What are their purpose? A description of what is real. Well, the, 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 the articulation of the natural law is describing what is real. But the law itself, what's its purpose? Life. It's the principle upon which life is built. Its purpose is for life to exist. What are the purposes of the enacted laws? Keeping order, protect. Did you hear that? Control behavior, keeping order, protect. I think all those have purposes. What is the problem when one breaks one of the natural laws? He said natural consequences. The problem, you break one of the natural laws. The, the problem is some, well, ultimately, the ultimate consequence is death. See, what is, the, what is sin called in Scripture? Sin is lawlessness or transgression, being outside the law, the law upon which the natural law. And if you step outside that natural law, the wages of sin is death. So if you break natural law, there is a set of consequences that come that ultimately result in ruin and death, pain, suffering, and death. What's the problem if you break an imposed law? She says it depends on if you get caught. Is that not right? It's exactly right. If you break a natural law and you don't get caught by some other external intelligent entity, do you avoid the consequence? No. If you break an imposed law, you get speed and don't get caught, can you avoid the consequence? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay? So, if we teach God, God's law requires that he impose penalties, what have we just done? A big cop in the sky. We've made God a big cop in the sky. What have we just done to his law? We have just changed the unchangeable law. As soon as you teach God must impose penalties, we've just made his law the law, uh, we've just changed it from the natural law to an imposed law. And the law that cannot change, we've changed. This is what's happened to Christianity. So, but there's another layer I, I, I want to get to, and that is the layer of rules. School dress code, no chewing gum in class, no TV on school nights, no video games if your grades are not B's or better, must brush your teeth each night before you go to bed, now, these aren't laws, and they're also uh, they're not laws of any order. They're rules. What purpose, what is the purpose of the rules? Keep order. Keep order. Keep order. Teach and train. Somebody said over here to teach and train. To teach and train. Now, did you notice there's a, 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 there is a law so far, there is some other law that we have not yet included. It was mentioned peripherally, but we haven't actually included it yet. That's the Ten Commandments. 
When we went through the natural law, went through the imposed law, we haven't talked about the Ten Commandments yet. So, what about the Ten Commandments? Where do they fit in? Were the Ten Commandments always in existence? Not the written one. Are there any other commandments other than the the written ones? Well, they weren't written in Eden, but they were... They were in in effect. The lesson takes that position too. Let's see if we can look at the evidence for that. Romans 5.20 says, The law was added so that the trespass might increase. What law was added that the trespass might increase? I would say the Ten Commandments. Galatians 3.19 says, The law was added because of transgression of the seed who was promised has come. What law was added? Because of transgression. Ceremonial. Were the laws, think, let's reason together. Come, let us reason together. Were the laws that God constructed his universe to operate upon added later? So think that through. The laws that he built his universe to, to run upon were not added later. Were the Ten Commandments added later? Yes. Yes, they were. Was the Sabbath commandment? In heaven? How do we measure the Sabbath? When do we know when the Sabbath starts and the Sabbath ends? Uh, sundown and sun up of what planet? The Earth. Around what? In relation to what body? And when was that created? And the rest of the universe was already in existence, according to Job chapter thirty-eight. So the Sabbath wasn't even measurable until the creation of this planet. So it wasn't in existence prior to the creation of this planet. Why was it not in existence? That's a whole other discussion. <clears throat> yes. What law did Lucifer break and became sin? Oh, that's a great question. We're going to get there in just a second. That's a perfect question. One of the founders of our church saw it this way. First, like the message is 233. I'm asked concerning the law in Galatians. Remember the law that was added. I'm asked concerning the law in Galatians. What law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? I answer both the ceremonial and the moral code of the Ten Commandments were added. Both were added. Now, did you notice the language used here? It's very critical to notice. I think she's brilliant. The moral code of the Ten Commandments. See, God's law of love that we've already established, the principles upon which he built his universe, were always in existence. They emanate from his character. But what happened at Sinai is God codified. He codified the law of love, specifically for human need. And it was never codified in this way prior to Sinai. What do you mean codified? He made a code. He wrote it down in a specific way. For instance, that the angels have their sins passed down from one generation to another. That was written in the Ten. Um, Did the angels need a law to not commit adultery with one another or honor their mother and father? or a law not to covet their neighbor's wife. You see, this law that was written in, in, in Sinai was a codification of the law of love. They're all the principles of love. But they were written specifically for the human need, not for the angelic need. The angels in heaven did not have the law in this form. And written for the human need at that point of sin. 
they weren't given in the Garden of Eden because they weren't needed in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, we're going to get, yeah, it's exactly right. Exactly right. And so in Patriarchs and Prophets 364, it says it this way. If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity of the ordinance of circumcision. And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was the sign, there would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer in the life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon the tablets of stone. And had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need of the additional directions given to Moses. And so you see this progression. God is meeting people where they are. Think about your kids. Just think about this when you're raising kids. You set a boundary, you set some rules. If that is not sufficient to help them stay in line and behave and grow up and mature, what do you do? Do you add more rules? Do you add more restrictions? Do you add more consequences? Do you keep piling on and restricting and restricting and restricting to get them to a point, a, a small enough window that they can operate in without damaging themselves? And as they master that level of functioning, then do the restrictions start coming off of them as they can master more and more freedom. You see, God is dealing with a, a human a human need that they had fallen and fallen and fallen, this, this level of degradation deeper and deeper. And so he, he keeps adding upon, adding upon, adding upon because of our need. He meets us where we are. The law, let's be very clear, was always in existence because it emanates from God's character. But the form of the law the codification of the Ten Commandments was not always in existence. That was added because of our need. So the Ten Commandments are not enacted, nor are are they imposed, neither are they the full reflection or revelation of the natural law of love. They're a distillation of the law of love, specifically designed for the need that mankind had, the codification of it. Um... And we read that it had three purposes. There's three purposes that God did this. One, and we already read one of the purposes, so that sin or trespass might abound or increase, so that we could see sin more clearly. It was given as a diagnostic instrument to expose the sickness in our hearts. This is one of the reasons the Ten Commandments was given. It was also given as a hedge of protection to protect us from the damage that comes from living in violation of God's law and to lead us to Christ. And third, it was a promise of what we would look like when God puts the law back in the heart where he's promised to put it when we trust him. So this written law was for our need to show us our sickness, to protect us, and to give us encouragement that that's what we'll look like when he finishes writing the law in our hearts and minds. So here's a historic Adventist perspective on this. This is out of a book called The Desire of Ages, page 20. And we're going to answer now the question that was asked earlier, in heaven, what law was broken? In the beginning, God was revealed in all the works of creation. It was Christ that spread the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. It was his hand that hung the worlds in space and fashioned the flower of the field. His strength set us fast the mountains. It was he that filled the earth with beauty and the air with song. And upon all things in earth and air and sky, he wrote the message of the Father's love. Now sin had marred God's perfect work, yet that handwriting remains. Even now all created things declare the glory of his excellence. There is nothing save the selfish heart of man that lives unto itself. No bird that cleaves the air, no animal that moves upon the ground, but ministers to some other life. There is no leaf of the forest or lowly blade of the grass, but has its ministry. 
Every tree and shrub and leaf pours forth that element of life without which neither man nor animal could, could live. And man and animal in turn minister to the life of tree and shrub and leaf. The flowers breathe fragrance and unfold the beauty and blessing to the world. The sun sheds its light to gladden a thousand worlds. The ocean, itself the source of all our springs and fountains, receives the streams from every land, but takes to give. The mists ascending from its bosom fall in showers to water the earth, that it may bring forth and bud. What are you hearing being described so far? Do you hearing a law being described here? No? Nobody's hearing a law? I see heads nodding at some here. No. Yes, there's a law being described here, a design protocol, the law of giving. Everything gives in order to live. We'll keep reading. The angels of glory find their joy in giving, giving love and tireless watch care to souls that are fallen and unholy. Heavenly beings woo the hearts of men. They bring to this dark world light from the courts of above. By gentle and patient ministry, they move upon the human spirit to bring the lost into fellowship with Christ, which is ever closer than they themselves can know. But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking into Jesus, we see that it is the glory of God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him who has sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. The law of life, the great principle, what words were these? All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. In heaven itself, this law was broken. Which law was broken? The law of love, the law of giving, the law of life. Was it the Ten Commandments? They weren't, they weren't there yet. It was this principle upon which life was built. It was broken. In heaven, this law itself was broken. Sin originated in self-seeking. Lucifer, the covering cherub, desired to be first in heaven. He sought to gain control of heavenly beings, to draw them away from their creator. Therefore, he misrepresented God, attributing to him the desire for self-exaltation. Thus he deceived angels. Thus he deceived men. Satan caused them to look upon him as severe and unforgiving. Thus he drew men to join him in his rebellion against God. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God. That the gloomy shadow might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done, you know, get your mind around this, guys. This could not be done by force. The exercise of force is contrary to the principle of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. Love cannot be commanded. Why the Ten Commandments? Or were they the Ten Suggestions? Think this through completely. I mean, did you hear what we just read? This is profound. This is life-changing. This, this goes against 1,500 years of Christian tradition. For 1,500 years or more, Christianity has taught that God has imposed law to control behavior and he must have a judicial enforcement and punishment for the lawbreakers. 
And in that punishment, he sent his son and punished his son in our place. Think it through. Think through what we just talked about. That law is not the law upon which life is built. Also, if, if that were true, what power do earthly governments get you to conform? What power do they use? The power of love or the power of coercion? So if God is, is, is practicing that method, he is using the power of coercion. The exercise of force is contrary to the principle of God's government. His desire is only the service of love. Love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. So what law was broken in heaven? It was not the Ten Commandments that Lucifer broke. They didn't exist yet. But he did break the law of love upon which the Ten Commandments are based. Do you all see it? It's huge difference. Yes? But in essence, it, it was also the Ten Commandments, because according to Christ, the Ten Commandments is love God above all things and love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments are codification of the law of love, but they are not the fullness of the law of love. Um, let me put it this way, and this is a metaphor, because we've talked about the written laws, the transcript of God's character. If we took a sample of your DNA, we could, we could write that down. We could codify it. We could put it down and do exact transcript. And we could study your DNA and the sequence of your genome. And we could learn things about you. We could learn what your eye color is, your blood type. We could learn um, uh, how tall you're going to grow. We could learn all these things. By studying your DNA, we could learn these things. Would we know the sound of your laugh? Would we know the warmth of your hug? Would we know the love or maliciousness in your heart by studying your DNA code? You understand that the Ten Commandments are a transcript of God's character, but they are not the fullness of God's character. There is much missing. That's why Christ was the Word made flesh. In Christ, you see the fullness of God's character. The fullness of God had dwelt in Christ bodily. Okay, And so the Ten Commandments, yes, again, it's not an imposed law. It's also not the full expression of the natural law. It's a codification of the natural law for our need. Yes. Dennis. It, it, just thinking on my feet, it seems like it's kind of like uh, rules, like you talked about, you know, brushing your teeth and other things. They're, they're to bring you to realize what the natural laws sort of are. Um, exactly, exactly. In other words, you, you're trying to prevent more damage until one understands that the longer-term consequences of not brushing your teeth, what those are. Well, I think we get so tripped up by language because in our mind, most often the word law is used with an imposition of a behavior trait. But it's, but from a scientific perspective, from, uh, from another perspective, it means the design, the way things actually work. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that there's two different ways to use the word law, but we are so familiar in our daily life with law being something that the government imposes upon us that we have trouble shedding that connotation. Right, so we can look at it as a lawyer, laws, or as a doctor, laws of health. If you look at it as laws of health, it helps clarify, wait, laws of health aren't imposed. Laws of health, you don't have to be punished for breaking. Laws of health are natural principles that life is built upon. When you come through it, that's why Christ spent most of his time healing. That's why the founders of our church said the right arm of the ministry is the health message. Because the health message most clearly reveals the gospel in action. Because we're out of harmony with God's principles of life, and God has come to heal. The word salvation, the root, actually means to heal. If you go to the ER after being bitten by a rattlesnake, you say, doctor, please save me. Save me. I want to be saved. Are you saying, please forgive me? Pardon my, discre- my, my, my discretions? 
You're saying, heal me. That's what salvation is. Healing, restoration. Yes. If we break, if we transgress the Ten Commandments, don't we also break the law of love? Absolutely. There's no question. Yes. In the past, Tim, you have referred to them instead of commands and laws as prescriptions. Yes. Okay. Because they have three purposes. They diagnose, they expose, diagnose, they protect, they lead us to Christ, and their promises of what we're going to look like. God prescribed the, these for the purpose of diagnosing, revealing. Okay. Um, what happens in how we see God's character if we change the law from the natural law he built a life to operate upon to an imposed law? Do we see him differently? Yes. And, and, and it's very clear. If it's the natural law, then we are out of harmony with it. We see God as using all of his energies from heaven to save us, heal us, restore us, uh, uh, redeem us uh, in the sense of to put us back in the, the way he designed life to be. He's all for us all the time. For us, for us, for us. Always working against the infection of sin and things that oppose us. If we see it as imposed law, then we see he's out to make sure justice happens and make sure the, the right punishments are applied for the breaking of the law. And all the way through, he'll be for us. All the way through to our non-existence, he'll be for us. Exactly. Exactly. If you have, if you have heart disease, if it's an imposed law instead of a natural law, then you would see God as filling your arteries because you disobeyed something instead of your arteries getting plaque in them because of your choices. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in the notes. And by the way, a request came that Dean put our notes up on the day we have class today instead of waiting for the uh, recording to come out so that some of the people in the class wanted to be able to go home Sabbath afternoon and review the notes. So he's going to put those up the same day from now on, even though the recording won't be up for a day or two later. Uh, and that's going to happen. He's going to go home today and put our notes up because there's stuff I'm skipping in the notes right now you might find interesting because we're not going to get through it all. Yes, Lisa. I just wanted to... Um Say that when we take a vow when we get married, we have we promise to love, honor, and cherish. And um, when those laws uh, sometimes are broken later on in a marriage, there is not an imposed penalty, but you suffer the consequences of those laws. So isn't that sort of like God's vow or our commitment to God? And when we break that commitment, we've lost that connection. See, you can have both happening simultaneously. You can have God's law of love. And then you can have man come along and put an imposed law on top of it. And then when you break one, you're breaking the other simultaneously. And so you can both have an imposed penalty. For instance, murder. Thou shalt not murder. It's, it's, it's violating the law of love to take another life. And the, and the society can put in a law too. And so you can not only damage your character by murdering somebody, but you can also have consequences by the state put upon you. So yes, you can have both happening simultaneously. Last paragraph on Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson, we're going to skip a little bit. It says, uh, in a sense, Paul's saying here what Ellen White said happened at Sinai. The problem was not with God's law. The problem was with sinners who have violated the law, as we all have done. Paul is showing how the law is inseparably tied to the gospel, and it is the law that shows just how sinful and fallen we are. I think they're exactly right. This law shows how sinful and fallen we are. I, I didn't exactly like some of the language and the way they expressed this, particularly this idea, the problem is not with God's law, the problem is with sinners who have violated the law as we have all done. Is that really the problem? Hmm. Or is it that we're out of harmony with the law? And let me give you an analogy. Law of gravity. If you purposely jump off a building, or you get thrown off the building by another person, or you get tricked into stepping off the building, or you slip and accidentally fall off the building, does it change the way you're treated by gravity? I mean, this is an important thing I want you to understand. 
Because when we talk about violating the law, uh, does it matter whether you do it purposely or you're tricked into it and do it ignorantly? In Eden, did Eve break the law knowingly or did she get deceived and tricked into doing it? Did the law treat her differently? Why didn't? Why does the law of gravity not treat you differently if you're tricked into jumping off a building than if you jump off on purpose? Why does the law not treat you differently? Because it can't be changed. It's very important to get your mind around this idea because we typically will start trying to entune motives into the heart. Well, he didn't mean it, therefore he won't have the same consequence. He didn't mean to jump off the building, therefore gravity will float him to the ground. <laughs> Russell. To take that step further, we were all born while our mothers were falling. Well, that's the next point. Thank you very much. Which one of us in this room chose to be a sinner? This was Russell's point. How many chose to, to be outside God's law? None of us had a choice in this room. We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. So it's not about those who have violated God's law. It's about those who are outside of harmony with God's law. It'd be no different than waking up uh, and somebody had put you to sleep and thrown you out of a plane and you wake up and you're falling in the middle of the air. It's like, oh, wow, how'd this happen? <laughs> okay, I didn't choose to be out here, but it doesn't matter if you chose it or not. You're still in trouble. We didn't choose this. We're still in trouble. Now, why are we in trouble? We're in trouble because we chose to do this and we deserve punishment? Are we in trouble because our condition is a terminal condition? HIV-infected man and woman get together, have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. Baby didn't choose it. Baby still has a condition. Unremedied, we'll kill it. We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We were born out of harmony with the way God designed life to operate. Therefore, life cannot exist unless he fixes it. So we can see, if you understand it this way, Christ came to fix our condition. Man was broken. Not the law. The law didn't need appeasing or payment. This goes back to the definition of sin. Violators are committing acts based on a condition of their heart. Now, this is what Christ said in Matthew 5. Right. So, in, in their description, they're discussing actions. Right. Not heart condition. Not the condition. That's right. Jesus said, you say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart, you commit adultery, you commit sin. Uh, I say if you lust after someone in your heart. He's telling us behaviors are reflections of condition of heart. What about a person is tricked into taking LSD and another person takes it knowingly? Will the LSD work differently in each of them? Well, I thought that was vitamin C. Okay, does your ignorance of what you're taking change the physical, natural laws on how the universe runs? No, you still get the same consequence. This is how it is with God's law. That's why it says in Psalm 51, we're born in sin. So, if you have a loved one who jumps off a building, suicidal, they're kind of trying to commit suicide, and you have time and the opportunity to put one of those air mattress things, those big things that, you know, cushion the fall and save people, if you had the opportunity, it's your loved one, it's your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, one of your kids, they're, they're depressed, they're suicidal, they, they're going to jump off the building, but you've got enough time to put this thing down there that will catch them and save them, would you do it? Sure. Well, plan of salvation made before the foundation of the world. God foreknew we were going to jump. Christ was slain in the foundation. He already made provision. He knew that we were going to take the, the plunge. 
put ourselves out of harmony with the way he built life. So he made provision to save us. He began interceding to hold back the ravages upon which sin happens. You know, intercession in Scripture, scriptural intercession, is not what, what churches teach. Tradition, 1,500 years of tradition, teaches that God, Christ intercedes with his blood to the Father to peas and pay the penalty. That's not biblical intercession. Biblical intercession is, and you find it, as soon as man fell into sin, Genesis chapter 3, God intercedes. I will put enmity between you and the woman to the sermon. I will step in between. I will put a desire in the heart of the, of the children of men for something different than sin. I'm interceding in the heart. He also intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness. He sends his angels to hold back the four winds of strife and hold Satan's power in check. He's interceding against wickedness. And the most critical of all, Christ interceded with the progression and natural course of what sin would do to mankind. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our position to divert the course, the course of what sin, the natural course of sin in our life is eternal non-existence. Christ came, took that place, and diverted the course and brought life back and re-infused mankind with life. This is his intercessions. There's not one member of the Godhead interceding with another member. Monday's lesson. Uh, as soon as we talk about the law, the ten, uh, the ten Commandments in Sinai, we hear the refrain that the Ten Commandments were first given to the Jews at Sinai. Hence, the commandments were Jewish or an Old Testament institution and are not applicable to our day and time. Of course, numerous problems exist with the, that theology. The biggest being that if this were true, then how could there have been any sin before Sinai? For sin is transgression of the law. The truth is that the book of Genesis yields amazing witness to the existence of God's law long before Sinai. And we've already talked about how the law of love was already in existence, but the codification came at Sinai. An example of this would be, since the earth at least was created, on earth we've had the law of gravity in existence. It's been here, right? Isaac Newton comes along and now writes down the law of gravity in equations in a book. When Isaac Newton put it on paper in a book, is that when the law of gravity became? That's the Ten Commandments. God wrote it down, but it's already in existence. You see? And the, and, the, and the codification, Isaac Newton codified the law of gravity. God codified the, the, the law of love for the human need. Uh, next paragraph. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 describe God's perfect creation. Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve. In the next chapter, Genesis 4, we have the first murder. How did Cain know he was guilty for murdering his brother if there was no law to define murder as sin? Did you guys have a little, like, little mental speed bump here? Like, boom, what? Boom. Did you or not? See, they're making this argument that because Cain knew something was wrong, that the Ten Commandments in that form were in existence because he wouldn't know it was wrong if there wasn't a law to define murder as sin. That's the argument they're making. Do you really need it written down? Do you really need it written down? To know that if you love your brother, you don't kill him. Does that have to be written down to know that? That's what they're saying. He wouldn't have known it was wrong that, that it's a breach of love to kill. I mean, uh, you know what? I thought it was the most loving thing I could do to kill my brother. And I felt really good towards him when I did it. What about this? You have a 10-year-old little brother. 
And you love him. Really. If you do, will you give your 10-year-old little brother cigarettes, alcohol, and cocaine? Well, wait a minute. Where is it written in the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not give your little brother cigarettes, alcohol, and cocaine. How could it possibly be wrong? It's not written there, so it must not be wrong. You show me a commandment that says that that's wrong. There's not one. Is it wrong? How do you know it's wrong? It's not written down. See, this is, this is lunacy that you have to have it written down in order for you to know it's wrong. It's wrong because it violates the very principles upon which God built his universe to run. When you love someone, you don't steal from them. You don't murder them. You don't commit adultery with their wife. When you love them, you protect them. You build them up. You promote their welfare. Yes. I think that's the, the, the line of our society nowadays. Unless it's written down, we use that as an excuse. So just even being late to work, um, it's not necessarily, it's, but yeah, suddenly they have to put in a policy, okay, if you're late so many times, we have to fire you. But you already knew it was wrong to be late for work. That's what they hired you for. But everyone has excuses, excuses. But I think in general, as a society, that's the trail we're going down. I agree. Um, let, let's, let's throw a little mud in the water here now. How about when murdering, killing another human being is legally right? Taking the life of another human. Can you do this without consequence? For instance, a police officer shoots a felon with a gun who's threatened him. Can the police officer do that without consequence to himself? A homeowner shoots an invader who's threatening his family. Can the homeowner do that without consequence to himself? A soldier in combat. How about when you're killing in God's name? When you are going into Jericho with your sword to kill every man, woman, and baby, and you come to Grandma with her seven little babies huddled around her, and you pull your sword out and you put them all to the to death because God has commanded it. Can you do that without consequence to yourself? And does that consequence build you up or harden your heart? It hardens your heart. It damages you. You see, it is a violation of God's design for us to take another human life. I will even go as far as to say it was a violation of God's design for us to take an animal life. God designed mankind to protect and, and, and govern over planet Earth. And the animals were brought to Adam. Read in the book, The Ultimate Prescription, very, very nice insight in that book. They were brought to Adam for him to name. When you have a pet and you name your pet, what happens in the naming of your pet? Do you not suddenly take some ownership over it? Some responsibility to protect, to feed, to, look care, to care for? God brought him to Adam to name because they were his to care for, to look over, to protect. It was not in God's design that Adam would set up slaughterhouses. It, we did damage. And then you see this in the history of the Old Testament system. When God didn't give them instruction to give sacrifices to, as an object lesson to teach them. What do you think the purpose of this was? Imagine, guys, just imagine what, what, what was going to happen. You, and, and I'll try to make this relevant to our day, You've committed a sin, and 
you're now required to take your puppy dog or your kitty cat to the church, confess your sins over its head, and then you have to look in its eyes as you cut its throat. How are you going to feel about that? What's going to happen inside you when you do that? Do you think you're going to maybe want to go out and vomit? Do you think it's going to make you sick? This is the purpose of that ceremony. It was to make people sick with sin. I never want to do that again. But what happened instead is they got callous. And if one sacrifice is good, I'll bring a thousand. I'll, I'll slaughter a thousand animals. And when Jesus came, we read last week about, about how he cleansed the temple and how it became a source of trade. And they didn't think anything. It had no impact. Their hearts had been hardened. This is what happens when you do this over and over again. We cannot take life without being hardened in the process. Yes? Let's go back to that home invasion. If I have a grandchild with me or, or a spouse or someone and I have the ability to choose to take that person out or let him kill everyone, is it selfish for me to say, oh, I can't do that because that would damage me? How about the person that's invading your home and is threatening everybody, is, is strung out on drugs, they're psychotic because they've been doing crack, and it's your grandson? Now what are you going to do? Or your son, your firstborn son. What are you going to do? From God's position, understand, every one of us is his child. So I suspect what you would do is you would not shoot to kill. If you felt you had to shoot at all to protect, you would shoot to wound so you could save them all. Your goal is, I, my, my motive, I'm trying to save everybody. Whereas we don't think that way. We're thinking, uh-uh, I'm killing you. But I'm saving them, you see. We think in this term. Yes, killing mice and rats and stuff, yeah. <laughs> yes, do you see how Satan has c- completely perverted nature? Has completely perverted nature. There were no pests. There were no pestilences. There were no diseases. There were no poisonous herbs and things. This is all part of sin. And so we do find ourselves in a situation where we are having to take precautions where we wouldn't have had to take them before. Um, Next paragraph down, it says, When Abraham lied about Sarah to Abimelech, God rebuked Abraham for his falsehood. Even though Abimelech was king of Gerar and uh, not of Israelite stock, God held him to the same standard of marital purity found in the Decalogue and demanded that Sarah be returned to Abraham. Did you have any bumps, sweet bumps in your mind on this one? Think about this. They're using this as an evidence that the Ten Commandments were in existence and he's holding uh, Abimelech to the, the standard of, of, of the Ten Commandments. Think about it. Well, wait a minute. How is it that Abraham had uh, three concubines and Jacob had uh, two wives and two concubines? And, uh, and, of course, later David had five wives and Solomon had 700 wives. And, three and where do we find God rebuking these leaders? And, 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 uh, but he's going to rebuke Abimelech? Isn't it more credible that, in fact... The promised child was to come from a union of Sarah and Abraham, not Sarah and Abimelech. And Sarah had to go back to Abraham because that's the promise through which the, that's the union through which the promised child's coming. And if Sarah doesn't go back, the avenue for the Messiah gets, gets diverted. It seems to me that's the reason why. That without Sarah and Abraham together, then that whole channel, that whole plan, that whole family that God had picked, for the, for the working out of his plan of salvation doesn't exist. 
It has nothing to do with the commandment in this particular case. Not that, in fact, it was right or, or, or for him to do it. It wasn't. But this argument seems weak to me. I said, yeah, when you explained it, but when I read the lesson, I didn't in those terms. So this was a challenge. We want to the best of our ability to pull in every bit of inspired evidence that you can pull in. So when you read the story of Abimelech, you also want to be thinking about Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, all these other stories and bringing them in and then taking the principle and then applying it and see if it fits. You want harmony. Everything has to harmonize. And the more data you can bring together, then the clearer and clearer the picture gets. When we take these stories and look at them in isolation, this story sits and stands by itself. This story sits and stands by itself. Then things can become very murky and things become confusing. So our challenge is to always be asking, okay, what other things would fit here? How does the rest of my database that I've been building over the years of my life of reading God's word fit into this picture? Because we want a harmony through it all, yeah? So the last paragraph says, clearly the idea that there was no law until Sinai makes no sense in light of so much of what the Bible teaches about the life before Sinai. That's right. The law of love is in existence. But the codification was not until Sinai. That's why we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Listen to, what you, listen to what he says. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who was the pattern of the one to come. What is he saying? He's saying that when Adam sinned by breaking the command of God, his nature was changed from one operating upon God's design of love and now was infected with fear, selfishness, a terminal state. And all humans born of Adam are infected with the same terminal condition. Thus, deviations from God's design reign in human existence, i.e. sin, before the written law was given. And since life is built to operate in harmony with God's design principles, death was reigning, as all were out of harmony with how God designed things to run. And even in those who were dying, though, they did not choose, as Adam did, to break a specific command of God. Did you have fun with this lesson this week? Yeah, it makes you think, doesn't it? All right, Wednesday's lesson. It says, contrary to popular belief, all... all Though Israel ideally loved the law, those who understood the law's function never saw it as a means of salvation. The Hebrew religion had always been a religion of grace, even though the people went through one, uh, from one extreme to another. And I thought that is exactly well said. It has been a religion of grace. And I thought, can, you th- can we throw out some examples in the Old Testament that show the Old Testament system as a religion of grace? How about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? That's, that's grace. Why? Prior to that principle, that law that was given, they would kill anybody for the minor offense. But God said, no, you can't kill if somebody puts your eye out. You can't kill if somebody breaks your your arm. You can't kill if somebody bruises you. It's an eye for an eye, bone for bone, limb for limb, bruise for bruise, life for a life. This is grace. They were brutal people. They were slaves. They would kill you for the minor offense. And grace says, no, you can't kill for any minor offense. It's moving towards grace. How about the... uh, the cities of refuge. This is grace. You've made a mistake. Your axe handle flew off and you hit somebody in the head and killed them. Boom. They can't just kill you. Run to a city of refuge to have an opportunity. See? It's grace. How about judicial system? When you did go on trial, I don't know if you know the system of, of, of the way it was supposed to work. It didn't work this way for Christ, but it required, in order for somebody to be put to death in the Jewish system, it required two witnesses to agree in every detail 
and to be direct witnesses, no circumstantial evidence was, was, was admitted. You had to directly observe it and every detail had to agree. And the prosecutor was the family or the one who was offended. And the Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court with 72 lawyers that were all for the defense. So the entire Sanhedrin was to argue for the innocence of the person who was accused, while the untrained, uh, non-lawyer victim is arguing against those 72 lawyers. That's the system that was designed. It was all designed to save life. You don't see that in the trial of Christ. It's all perverted. That's grace. How about gleaning in the fields? Grace. How about the jubilees? Land and slaves set free. Land goes back to its right owners. Grace. How about the uh, accommodations for poor in the temple? They didn't have to bring a lamb. They could bring a turtle dove. And the whole sacrificial system itself was to teach God's love and the plan to take those out of harmony and bring us back into unity with him. Again, grace. The whole system is designed to, to teach grace. Um, how about now, this, this is what we're going to finish up with. Um, last paragraph. Why though... Um, why though such a law, a law, such a love of the law? And it goes on to explain some of these things uh, in that paragraph. And it talks about how they got sidetracked, sidetracked from the law of love into rules and rule keeping. They took the focus um, off of God, His character, and onto their own behavior. So, how about us today? Do we have troubles with this? If your neighbor is in need, and you are thinking of helping him, but it's Sabbath, what do you do? Do you, if you're thinking about your neighbor, you help him. If you're thinking about yourself, you don't because you must obey the law. This is what Jesus pointed out when he said the Jews will pull an ox out of the ditch on Sabbath, but they were mad at him for healing someone on the Sabbath. Is that not true? Now get this. I want you to get this reminder around this idea. Why were they mad at him for healing someone on Sabbath? Was Christ healing people on Sabbath that were emergencies? that these were life and death, limb-saving events, that they were emergency room interventions, that if he didn't act now, they would die before the Sabbath was over. Or were these chronic conditions that have gone on sometimes for decades that could have easily waited to sundown. Why didn't he wait to sundown to fix this chronic condition? Why did he do it on Sabbath? Get your mind around this idea, because it really blows a hole in some traditions within this organization. What was the lesson? Are we today only to help our neighbors if it is an emergency on Sabbath, or are we to help them with routine things like raking their lawn on Sabbath? Should we, see, I see some heads stating no. Christ healed routine things on Sabbath. Could have waited easily. It's 38 years he's been paralyzed, but he did it on Sabbath. Should we purposely dedicate a certain number of hours each Sabbath to go out and do public service work to minister and help others, but for which we will not receive pay? Would this be keeping or breaking the Sabbath? What would happen to the name of Christ in Chattanooga if a group of Sabbath keepers started committing four hours each Sabbath to works of community service and ministry, work for our neighbors and community? Would this uplift or tear down the name of Christ in Chattanooga? Would we be in harmony with the Sabbath or would we be breaking the Sabbath? Well, here's what one of the founders of the SDA Church said about this issue about working on Sabbath. This is out of Desire of Ages, page 207. Desire of Ages, 207. The demands of God, the demands upon God are even greater upon the Sabbath than upon other days. His people then leave their usual employment and spend the time in meditation and worship. 
They ask more favors of him on Sabbath than upon other days. They demand his special attention. They crave his choicest blessings. God does not wait for the Sabbath to pass before he grants these requests. Aren't you glad? Heaven's work never ceases, and men should never rest from doing good. The Sabbath is not intended to be a period of useless inactivity. The law forbids secular labor on the rest day of the Lord. The toil that gains a livelihood must cease. No labor for worldly pleasure or profit is lawful lawful on the Sabbath day. But as God ceased his labor of creating and rested upon the Sabbath and blessed it, so man is to leave the occupations of his daily life and devote those sacred hours to healthful rest, to worship, and holy deeds. Holy deeds. The work of Christ in healing the sick was in perfect accord with the law. It honored the Sabbath. Is that how you were raised to observe the Sabbath? Should we do good works and deeds to help our fellow and community on the Sabbath? Hmm. I'm thinking it would be a incredible witness for the Lord in this community if we were to organize a way to actually be active in helping others on the Sabbath. Ministering God's love rather than talking about God's love. Love in action. So I, I, I'm putting the idea out there for this class to pray about, to think about, and to consider how can we honor God, honor the Sabbath, in action, in blessing our neighbors. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you aren't resting today, that you're working for our salvation, that you're working for our restoration you're working for our deliverance, that you are actively engaging the enemy and holding him at bay. Lord, we have a lot to learn. We've got a lot to unlearn. We pray that your Holy Spirit will enlighten us, that our hearts will have the motive of your kingdom, that we will love others and you more than we love ourselves. Give us wisdom and how to uh, become more effective in this community in showing the truth about your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen.